last week we read about God's call to Abram to leave Haran. And this week we see uh, what happens when he left. We know that he didn't know exactly where he was going uh, initially, but then at some point God revealed to him uh, that Canaan was where he was to go. And here we read that God uh, uh, confirms to him that this is the land that he is uh, to be given. And so we read that he heads to Canaan and uh, we are told that he took his wife Sarai and his brother's son Lot. And in verse 5, we are additionally told that uh, he took all of his possessions uh, and the people that he had acquired while he was in Haran. Uh, the word translated for people here, uh, when it says that he took the people he had acquired, is nephesh, which is more correctly translated souls. So he took the, the souls he had acquired uh, in Haran. Most of our most modern translations translate it as people. The KJV says souls, and I think souls is a better rendering. It's more uh, it's a more literal rendering, and I also think that it suggests the kind of spiritual um, evangelism that Abram was already engaged in, and it matches his uh, spiritual call of saving souls, of acquiring souls. Um, it's almost a uh, a whisper of the ultimate purpose of Abram's calling uh, to bring souls out of their former abode to uh, this promised land. It's a hint toward the work of salvation that the Lord is doing here. And uh, I, I, I was formulating this, that this is what I was kind of thinking. And after I came to that conclusion, I read subsequently from a, a Jewish uh, commentator on this that um, uh, it was it was essentially the same thing, and he, but he zoomed in not on the word nephesh. Maybe maybe he did, but uh, he zoomed in on the word acquired. Um, and uh, uh, let's see here the in the people whom they had acquired. Yeah, that that uh, that verb there acquired. He argues uh, is. It's not the typical word that you would use for purchasing servants or slaves, um, and it, it could be better. Be it, it would it would uh, a better rendering would be made. So he took the 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 souls that he had made, and his conclusion was the same that it was this kind of evangelistic type of thing. And so I mean that's that's speculative, but I, I still think that that is um, worth. Considering, and I think a similar thing is going on with uh, with Lot. Lot um, is an orphan. It appears his father is deceased, and his mother isn't mentioned at all. Um, and so the exalted father Abram he takes on this fatherly role in Lot's life. He brings his soul out of Haran into the place of promise that God is calling him. And Haran, incidentally, is not just the name of the city he left, but it's also the name of Lot's father. His, name, his father's name was Haran. And so the father, Haran, departs from Lot, and Lot departs from Haran, the city. So Lot is, in a way, he's adopted by Abram, the exalted father. And uh, so Lot gets a new father and sets out to a new city, and all of this is God adopting Abram and his household and bringing them into the city of God. 
of note is the fact that Abram took all of his possessions with him. Uh, we talked extensively last week about Jesus' teachings on leaving your home, leaving your family, uh, your loved ones, and the, the difficulty of the rich uh, entering the kingdom. The rich young ruler uh, was sad because he was reluctant or unwilling to depart from his possessions. And in the history of the church, we see uh, many saints giving up all of their possessions to live this ascetic life, uh, a mendicant life, a begging life, a life of poverty, uh, particularly the desert monks of the early church like St. Anthony or the mendicant orders of the middle, uh, medieval church like uh, the Franciscans and the Dominicans. There was this idea that uh, giving up all of your possessions was a form of being a super Christian. It was kind of the highest form of holiness, how to be perfect. And I think it's important for us to note that while some people may be called to that sort of renunciation, uh, perhaps like the rich young ruler, um, it's not a fixed principle uh, that material renunciation doesn't apply evenly to everybody, that God calls people to certain kinds of uh, things, and it's not this wooden uh, uh, principle for everybody. And that higher call looks different for each person, and that's what we see here with Abram. Abram is obedient to the higher call, but he's not required to get, leave his wife or Lot or his servants or his possessions. He's just required to leave his homeland and required to leave his father's household. So he's being obedient to the higher call that God has called him particularly to. And uh, the whole counsel of God, if we are to be into whole Bible Christians, really points to the, the conclusion of the matter is that it's a heart issue. It's where does your trust reside in? Where is your faith? Uh, what is your ultimate love? Remember, Jesus points this out in the rich young ruler. He says um, that uh, it's hard for people who trust in riches to enter the kingdom. So it's about our ultimate loyalty, our allegiance that uh, Augustinian rightly ordered love that we talked about. Paul writing to a young pastor named Timothy says this to him in uh, 1 Timothy 6, command those who are rich in the present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they be rich in good works ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. So Paul has a chance here in counseling Timothy to be like, command those who are rich in the world to sell their wealth, to give away their wealth, to live a life of poverty and wearing itchy horse shirts and begging for their food because that's the highest form of spirituality. He doesn't say that. He, he, he says uh, that those who are rich, don't be haughty. You need to be humble. Don't trust in your riches, which are uncertain. 
And earlier in the same passage, he, he gives a more stern warning against the trust and pursuit of riches, which kind of illuminates what's going on here a little bit more. He says, uh, now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And you'll hear this often, right? Money is the root of all evil. But that's not what he says. He says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It comes down to that love aspect. So Paul reminds uh, Timothy and Timothy's congregation, the rich there, uh, in a similar way that Jesus does, of uh, who do you ultimately serve? Are you going to serve Christ or mammon? Because you can't serve both. You can't have these divided loyalties. And immediately after, when he says don't pursue uncertain riches, um, he he substitutes that, which God does this. Uh, when God says to flee something, he'll tell us to flee towards something. He doesn't just say avoid, he'll say avoid and pursue. And so Paul says, avoid uncertain riches, relying on them, don't trust in uncertain riches. But here are certain riches that you can trust in. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. These are the ways that we become rich in the kingdom. And so pursue these things. And because of this, uh, he commands the rich uh, to be rich in good works, to be liberal with their wealth, to use it to bless others. And this is what we see Abram doing. He's being obedient to God, placing his trust in him, acting accordingly and using his wealth to bless others along the way. So Abram is, he's traveling southeast into Canaan from Haran. And from the perspective of Canaan, that means he would be arriving from the north and uh, the east. Um, oh, so yeah, he would, be, he would be traveling southwest, actually, from, from, Can uh, from Haran to Canaan. And from Canaan, he would be coming from the north and the east. He travels through Shechem and then to uh, the Terebinth tree of Morah. Uh, which are both in the valley between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, which later, this is where Israel uh, re uh, recites the, it's kind of this liturgical response back and forth of the blessings of the covenant from Mount Gerizim and the curses of the covenant from Mount Ebal. And this is basically central Canaan. And then the text goes out of its way to tell us something. And this seems obvious, but it's placed in there. It says, and the Canaanites were in the land. <laughs> so he comes to Canaan, and then it says, and the Canaanites were in the land. So here comes Abram to this land filled with Canaanites. And when they meet him, they say, hi, what's your name? And Abram says, hi, my name is Exalted Father. And they say, oh, are these your kids? Are these your children? And he says, uh, no. Oh, 
uh, are your children back where you came from? And he says, uh, I don't have any children. <laughs> oh, okay. Check this guy. This is exalted father. He doesn't have any children. And uh, I think that that is part of the, this, is, this was one way Abram was bearing the shame of the cross. Uh, those who are called by God um, in, in, in whatever way that you're called, there's going to be something that opens you up to derision and mockery and the butt of a joke by the world. God is going to call you to something that seems insane and the world is going to have a good time mocking you for it. Jesus uh, endures these kinds of things, this kind of mockery. He's standing before the Sanhedrin, this great prophet. He is the great prophet, capital P prophet. And, uh, and what do the soldiers do? They start slapping him and punching him in the face. And what do they say? Prophesy, tell us which one of you hit, tell us which one of us hit you, right? Opportunities for the wicked to mock the righteous are uh, innumerable and they will happen. All those who desire to live a godly life are uh, going to uh, suffer. They're going to have these kinds of things. And so, uh, you know, when you are called by God to do certain things, that you're going to be identified with the shame of the cross. I was, I, I was, uh, I had a good thing going when I was in the Marine Corps. Um, I was getting more comfortable uh, as my role as as a, a ground intel officer, and I had a deployment under my belt and working with Border Patrol, and I was really starting to get the hang of it a little bit more. And I, in that, in the course of that time, I felt like the Lord was calling me out of that into ministry. <laughs> into what we're doing now. And when I was there, um, <laughs> I'd have, I had to report to my company commander what my future plans were. And uh, so what are you doing, uh, Lieutenant Shannon? What, what's, what are your plans going forward? Well, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go to seminary. Oh, really? Where are you gonna go? Uh, Greyfriars Hall. Uh, what? <laughs> Greyfriars Hall? Yeah, it's in northern Idaho. Oh, okay. The only thing I know about northern Idaho is there's militias and anarchist groups up there, you know? I mean, I mean, I got weird looks. It's like you're going to go to this weird medieval sounding. It's like, oh, so you're joining a cult. Okay, you're joining a cult. See you, Lieutenant Shannon, <laughs> you know? I mean, that's just one example. Everybody has these things. Um, Everybody has these things that we, we open ourselves up to uh, mockery and derision. So if you desire to follow Christ, to be obedient to the Father, you better get used to being the punchline at cocktail parties. You better get used to being made a laughing stock. And you should steel yourself against uh, this kind of thing by clinging to the words of Jesus. That by these things... You are blessed. Know that you are suffering these slights, which pale in comparison to the kinds of things that the God-man himself suffered, and that you will be more rich because of it. For the joy set before him, Christ endured uh, the cross, despising the shame. But he was ultimately exalted to the right hand of the Father. And so I think we have that similar dynamic. For the joy set before us, we can endure the crosses that we have to bear, and we can despise the shame 
It's nobody enjoys that kind of shame aspect, but that is part of the Christian life. That is part of picking up the cross. And I think the exalted father, when he enters into Canaan, had to bear that. Um, so Abram bears that shame and the Lord appears to him. Now, I didn't um, relay this accurately last week, so I just want to make a quick uh, uh, correction here. Um, or I guess a, a fuller elaboration. This is actually the second time um, that the Lord appears to him. It's a third time the Lord talks to him. It's the second time that he appears to him. Um, he did appear to Abraham, Abram when he was in Ur. In Genesis, there's no mention of this. But Stephen the deacon in Acts, in Acts 7, before, before he gets stoned, he gives the sermon to the Jews, and he says that the Lord appeared to Abram while he was in Ur, calling him out before, he explicitly says before he was in Haran. So um, when I was reading that, I was like, oh, okay, I had this in my mind, but I didn't quite know where it came from. That's where it came from. So the Lord appears to him and speaks. Um, he speaks a continuation of the promise that he was giving to him when he was in Haran. Earlier, God says, leave to a land that I will show you. And here, God says, this is it. I've shown you. This is the land. Um, and he says this. He says, to your seed, I will give this land. Our translation says, uh, descendants to your descendants, and that's a kind of misleading, but I mean, it's true, but it's only true in a secondary sense, uh, because the word here for seed, zera, is, uh, it's singular, which obviously is a reference to Christ, right? No, it's not. It's not, it's not totally obvious. That is what it's talking about, but it's not totally obvious. I would not get that from reading this, but Paul makes this explicit in Galatians, Paul says this, he says, now to Abram and his seed were the promises made. So that's what we read here. Um, that's what we read in, let's see here. Verse seven, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land or more accurately to your seed. I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So Paul then explains this to us and he says, now to Abram and his seed were the promises made. He does not say and to seeds as of many, but as of one and to your seed who is Christ. So the primary sense or ultimate promise being made here is that God was going to give the land to Jesus, that God was going to give the land to the Christ. And not just the land, not just the land of Canaan, but the whole cosmos, the entire heaven and the entire earth. Canaan was like the leaven that God was putting into the loaf of the earth. It was heaven planting its flag on earth in its initial colonial conquest. And here we have Abram as the first colonist, the first invader sent by heaven to reclaim the territory, to begin the reunification of heaven and earth. And so what's the, what's the flag that he plants? If he's this heavenly colonial invader, what's the flag that he plants? 
It's the altar. He builds an altar, which is what an altar does. It's a way of connecting heaven and earth. Um, And then he travels further south to a mountain that's uh, east of Bethel, Beit El, which literally just means house of God. And then west of Ai, which literally means heap of ruins. And uh, he builds a second altar. So here comes Abram in this land filled with Canaanites, building all these altars to his God, not to the Canaanite gods. And uh, so... Abraham is, Abraham is making this statement. He's this immigrant coming and building this, these altars to another God. And um, Abram is, is an immigrant who's not at all interested in assimilating into the culture, right? That's what these altars are stating. These altars signify the kind of imperialism of his religion. Um, he's bringing the true religion to the land of these false religions and he's, when he's doing this, he's envisioning these people being wiped out or converted to his religion, right? God's saying, this land's going to be yours. These, they're going, it's going to go to your descendants. So Abram has this kind of aggressive imperialism going on with his altar building. And we're not told the reaction of the Canaanites here, but perhaps they were like our modern Uh, Perhaps they were like modern Americans in the way that we view uh, uh, immigrants, at least the multiculturalist. Uh, Perhaps they were were thrilled to have Abraham come in. Yeah, come on in, Abraham. More diversity. Diversity is our strength. Come on in. Uh, We're happy to have you. Uh, We're happy to have your God in the pantheon of our gods. And we're happy to have you as long as you keep this religion private into yourself. Uh, uh, maybe they were libertarians and they were like, we're happy to have you as long as you abide by the non-aggression principle. Um, there, there's, there's a lot of ungodly ways of thinking about these things that um, could have been going through their minds. I don't know. But what happens is that the non-aggression principle does not apply um, and that the Abrahamic God is not assimilated into the pantheon of the Canaanites God, Canaanite gods. What happens is that Abram's descendants, led by Joshua, come marching by these altars and wiping out the Canaanites, wiping out these Canaanite children several generations later, and establishing a politic and a church dedicated to Abram's God. And so uh, this is how things work. This is how the world works. Um, Multiculturalism and the idea of neutrality in the public sphere uh, doesn't work. There's always a God of the system. There's always God's clamoring to be the God of the system. And so our choices are not between uh, no religion and or a particular religion. It's which religion is going to rule. And Abram is making a statement about who his God is and envisioning that God ruling in that land. 
we're also told that Abram sets up a, a tent and then he builds an altar. So for Abram, his domestic life was also his worshiping life. You have tent and altar. Living space, worshiping space. And this shows us that his family was a kind of domestic church. And that's what the family is. It is a domestic church. He led his family, his people, in worship. He was uh, the priest of his home. God made the world patriarchal. And the smallest patriarchal structure is the home. And here in the home, uh, men will either lead their families to worshiping the triune God, or they will lead their families to worshiping other gods, either proactively or through abdication. A God will be worshiped. And the men are responsible to lead in that worship, to lead their wives and their children in worship. And I would add, lead their employees and soldiers in worship. Since that's what these other people in his household were. They were essentially employees and soldiers. They were his militia. And since today is Father's Day, I guess uh, we can give a shout out to uh, our father, um, Carrie Shannon, for, for being a... <laughs> Being a good patriarch, uh, and um, I am, yeah, my sister and I would testify to his uh, leading in worship in uh, when we were growing up. And I, I mean, I remember particularly, uh, you know, just during the week, uh, prayer times, worship times, and I, uh, you know, as a teenager, you're not always thrilled. To have to do that, you know, and the, and the patriarch of the family gathered everybody up to sing praise songs, to read the Bible. Um, and that was instilled into me, even at a, I think, a deeply ingrained way, even when I was not super thrilled about it. There was something being cultivated in everybody in that family where it's like this guy is leading. He's clearly the leader. And it's ingraining in me the supremacy of scripture, the importance of worship, all of these things, which if you train a child up in the ways of the Lord, when he gets older, he will not depart from it. I am an example of that. Uh, and everybody that he raised in that family is an, is an example of that. And so it, it goes to show the kinds of the, the importance of that kind of patriarchal structure and that kind that heavy responsibility on the leaders uh, on men if you just if you are going to uh, have a family um, this needs to be part of your worldview of your mind here's my tent here's my altar these things are together let's worship the Lord Notice where he sets up this first altar, uh, or I guess the second altar. It's on a high place. It's on a mountain. It's on a mountain to the east of Bethel. Um, so it's in a high place. It's uh, an, an altar at a high place, which after the establishment at Sinai of the uh, 
the worship of uh, the worship at high places are generally associated with pagan practice. They're often rebuked. Kings are rebuked for not taking down the high places, uh, things like this. And that's because the locus of worship shifts from this kind of patriarchal, um, more, uh, uh, I guess, it shifts from that to um, the tabernacle and the temple with an established priesthood and the sacrifices being located there in that space. Um, but here we see uh, the worship is, is permitted, and that was the regular course prior to uh, Sinai. And we see this happen throughout redemptive history, that the modes of worshiping God, they do change. And I mean, the most obvious example is that in our worship of God, we don't have to sacrifice. We don't have a sacrifice through an established Aaronic priesthood or um, you know, even at a patriarchal level, we're not um, sacrificing animals because Christ, all of that symbolized Christ. And so our, uh, I guess, cultic expression, meaning kind of that solemn ritualistic expression, is, uh, is more along the lines of the bread and the wine, which Jesus institutes. Uh, the second thing is that the altar is between the heap of ruins in the east, AI, heap of ruins, and the house of God in the west. And if you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the east up until this point is, it's not a good thing. It's associated with exile. It's associated with leaving the presence of God. And if you remember, the, the uh, if we can anticipate the tabernacle, the tabernacle in the temple, is uh, situated facing east. And so um, worship has this westward orientation where you move from the entrance into the Holy of Holies and it is like entering back into uh, Eden and then the Garden of Eden. It is entering back into the presence of God. So it's kind of this exile return idea and it's uh, in the east and the west have uh, presence of God and heap of ruins kind of connotations to them, which is exactly what Abram is at right now. He's right in the middle of these things. And that is a, I, I think, symbolizes this mediatorial role that Abram is playing uh, between heaven and earth. Um, it's, his, it's a priestly role. It's a bridging of that gap between the heap of ruins and the house of God. He, after all, he does build an altar. So he has this kind of priestly um, aspect to what he's doing. And this is our role in the world um, as, as being part of Christ's body. We are, um, as Augustine says, that the total Christ is Christ as the head, but we are his body. And that is the total Christ. And Christ is the one mediator between God and men. And so we actually participate in that priestly function um, of bringing men from the heap of ruins into the house of God. Our presence in the world is this priestly mediatorial presence where we are uh, sacrificing ourselves and we are bringing people into the house of God. Bringing them out of desolation into the house of God. Serving to connect those two things. So he builds this second altar and then he calls on the name of the Lord. And we are right at 
uh, our time mark. And so uh, next week we will talk about uh, what it means to call on the name of the Lord, and then we'll finish it out. We'll finish the chapter out by talking about his uh, journey into uh, Egypt. So let's pray. The charge is this, plant flags, build altars, be the kind of Christian who seeks God, obeys God, follows God. And then when God inevitably, inevitably puts you in these seemingly impossible situations where you're surrounded by your enemies, where a table is presented before you in the presence of your enemies, when you are surrounded by Canaanites in the land, plant your flag, build your altar, Call on the name of the Lord. Say, God, this belongs to you. God, I am surrounded by co-workers who don't know you. God, I am surrounded by family members who hate you. God, I am surrounded by friends who are ignorant of your commands. Say to them, hey, brother, do you know the Lord? Do you know what Jesus says about marriage? Do you know that James tells us to control our tongue? Do you know that Paul tells us that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Be imperialistic. Begin that process of land conquering. Let your worship to God be visible to all men, just as all men were able to see the altar outside of Abram's tent on the top of the mountain. Plant the flag of heaven on your heart. Plant it on your family, on your church, on your city, and on your nation. These things are Christ's, so plant that flag. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the communion of the Holy Spirit and the love of God be on you all, and amen.